Hi, everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Radzeski, here with Greg Baer, and we're the co-authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Arthur G. Affleck III, Executive Director of the Association of Children's Museums, an international nonprofit that represents and advocates for children's museums in all 50 states and 16 countries. He's also an author, whose latest book is Conversations About Education, Career, and Life. Arthur, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. Thank you. I am thrilled to be here. Arthur, so we've been doing this podcast for two years now, and you are our first in-studio guest. So welcome, first of all. And so for our listeners who don't know, we record this podcast in the basement of the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh. So I'm curious, Arthur, what brings you, the head of the Association of Children's Museums, to this Children's Museum? So this is my third visit to Pittsburgh in the last couple of months. I was here in December, and I'm thrilled to be here again, and I've come so much because I'm working with my dear friend and colleague, Jane Werner. This museum is one of our shining jewels in our community, and Jane and I are working together on an exciting new professional development initiative for the field, building on the many strengths at Pittsburgh, like their great museum lab and their great design work. But our new initiative will focus on helping our museums around the country to become more creative and innovative so that we can sustain our institutions into the future and serve children and families better. So everyone now knows, here we are in the basement of the Children's Museum in Pittsburgh, and Arthur, you've described this place. This place is full of exhibits and maker spaces and all sorts of hands-on opportunities for young and, in fact, older youth to do extraordinary things. And it's also a place that houses a school and a radio program and other extraordinary organizations. You've described children's museums as one of the fastest growing cultural industries in the world. Why so many children's museums? So I started my full-time work in the museum field in 2017 at the American Alliance of Museums. And that organization is the largest of the museum associations in the U.S. And in that role for five years, I got to move around the country pre-pandemic to see the growth of our museums. So generally, there has been an interest in culture, an interest in exposure to out-of-school experiences for kids in general. The pandemic hit, and there was uh, a great uh, challenge to museums. As a matter of fact, there was a prediction that a third of all museums would close permanently, and that was a prediction that uh, was written about by some of my colleagues. Fortunately for children's museums, that did not happen. Many of our museums figured out how to provide virtual content, how to engage their audience in other ways. Some of them had outdoor spaces. Uh, And then when the pandemic started easing and children and families felt comfortable coming back into the spaces, we are getting back to pre-pandemic levels of visitation and engagement, revenue generation and all that. But the real reason why the growth, if I may, I want to read a short quote from the great Fred Rogers. Ah, please do. So you may know that we give an award each year, something called the Great Friend of Kids Award. And a number of years ago, we gave that award to Fred Rogers. And in his talk, he said this, some people talk about play as if it were a relief, 
from serious learning, or even worse, a waste of time. But for children, play is exceedingly serious and important. In fact, play is a way for children to learn who they are, how the world works, solve problems, and to express feelings. Yes, play is the real work of childhood. And here's the part that's relevant to children's museums. He went on to say, and for young people today, many children's museums offer play experiences that other settings are not able to give them. And so if I were in a courtroom, I'd rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> so that's interesting that you bring that up, Arthur, because when I hear the word museum, that word conjures a couple of things for me. I think quiet, I think art, I think maybe dinosaur bones, if I'm lucky. But if you go upstairs in this children's museum, at least, that's not what you see at all. You see play as you just described. So for our listeners who've never been to a children's museum, or maybe it's been a really long time, can you help differentiate children's museums as they are today from museums as we might typically imagine them? Like what makes a museum uniquely for children? I'm on the board of the International Council of Museums, the U.S. section, and they spent like 18 months, two years coming up with a definition of, of what a museum is, and people argued and fought. They came down with something like a museum is a nonprofit, permanent institution in the service of society that researches, collects, conserves, interprets, and exhibits tangible and intangible heritage. They also offer experiences for education, enjoyment, reflection, and knowledge. So children's museums, some have collections, but we focus less on collections and more on providing immersive, hands-on, play-based exhibits and experiences for children and families. We believe that learning happens best and joy occurs when there is engagement and involvement and iteration. And the beautiful thing about children's museums is that you can't fail at playing. There's no wrong way to play. So we say, try it again, try it this way. And I have been one year in this role to dozens of museums all over this country and in foreign countries. Last December, we opened the new Children's Museum in Singapore. I was in the UK several months ago and they're opening the V&A, which is a venerable art museum, is opening the young V&A next year to serve children more effectively. So I think there is this realization that children are not just little adults. We're getting more comfortable with the science of learning that you all know well, uh, and that we've got to have children engage. We've got to give them agency. But the bottom line is that there's been a greater realization. We've got to get kids out and about into other kind of cultural spaces. We love the way that you've described children's museums. And for our listeners, as we talk about play, there are elements of free-for-all. We're not talking about free-for-all. This is not a Chuck E. Cheese restaurant, as great as a Chuck E. Cheese <laughs> restaurant can be, right? There is design. There is art. There is subject matter. In fact, you've talked about the four dimensions of children's museums as being local destinations, community resources, advocates for children, and educational laboratories. So what do you mean by educational laboratories? How can museums complement what happens at, say, school? We know that children spend much more time outside of school than they are in school. But we also know that we've got to do a better job of designing and redesigning educational experiences in schools, right? We have found that our museums, some of them have preschools, some of them have charter schools. There are things called museum schools where the museum is the school. I've been to those places as well, which is fascinating. And they use everything in the museum to teach the curriculum. I could name museums that have written their own curriculum for early learning. So all of that is, I think, tremendous 
and great. And then what we do is connect with schools to say, let's try some things. And so in-service and pre-service teachers come into some museums to learn and talk about how they can work together and how they can learn from what we're doing in, in the museum with playful learning uh, techniques. You may or may not know that there's one state, New Hampshire, that actually wrote into their legislation that playful learning and play must be a part of the pre-K curricula throughout the state. But they didn't know how to do it. And so they called the Children's Museum of New Hampshire and said, well, you come and talk to us about how we might do this. And they called the folk from the University of New Hampshire. And so I went up and visited and I got to see this collaboration between the museum and schools and the community. So the museum became a laboratory. They came into the museum to test out some things. They sent coaches into the schools to work with teachers. And it's working really well. And we hope to duplicate that success around the country. It's so exciting to hear you talk about this growing recognition of play as something that matters, something that's not frivolous. And one of the things you mentioned earlier was the idea of guided play. And there's so much research now about how guided play not only helps with academic learning, but also is important socially, emotionally, developmentally for kids, and as you just mentioned, for adults too. Can you tell our listeners who might not be familiar, what is guided play? How do you define it? And what are some of the ways you see guided play facilitated in places like children's museums? It is interesting to note that not everyone understands and appreciates the power of play. I've talked to superintendents who've said, we'd like for your museums and your organization to help us to convince parents and some teachers about the power of play. Some parents have said, my children should be seated someplace with an instructor in front of them, taking notes. They assume that's the best way to learn. They just don't know. But there is, as you said, a lot of research around play. So we believe that play is learning full stop. But guided play is a bit more valuable because in guided play, there's a learning objective, mm. right? In guided play, children still have agency. They still decide, I want to go here or here or have that experience over here. But the adult then supports the experience by making a suggestion or by asking a question. Or if the child gets stuck someplace, maybe um, helping them to look at things another way, but always allowing the child to have agency, but moving toward that learning objective. And so our museums do that. We have museum educators and we have exhibit designers. We create hundreds of exhibits in some museums that create various experiences. Just give you one example, water play. Almost every museum has something, has water play, has a climber, there's certain things they have. I have been in some museums and seen children who which would not leave the water play area. And the parents are like, no, we have to see this. But it was so creatively designed. There were concepts of physics and concepts of just, you know, hydration. They were talking. So it was amazing experiences. And that's just one example. The other thing we want to do with play and playful learning is you want to teach 21st century skills, collaboration, communication, confidence creativity. And sometimes you see, and whether it's water play or whether it's in the maker spaces or whether it's in the climber, you see kids communicating and collaborating. And I was in one museum where they actually said, there's a place in our climber where kids kind of can bump into each other and they have to negotiate that. There's no reason to, you know, have a confrontation here. And they work it out and they communicate and they collaborate. And you go this way, I'll do this. And so it's a wonderful thing. So I think that children need more of all play of unbridled, unstructured play, free play, and need more guided play. And that's what happens. Our museums have all of it. And I think that the well-being of children and families is greatly enhanced by the joy of experiencing our museums and learning and playing and growing together. 
It's possible I learned some of those skills of negotiation as a grown-up in the climber. It's it's possible, Ryan, that I got stuck. I have a seven-month-old son, and he can be inconsolable, right? Nothing's going to calm him down. But when I turn on the faucet and he can watch running water, like, he's just so into it. So, Russell, if you're listening to this one day, hopefully we've gone to a, see a water play exhibit. Maybe it's right here at the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh. This is Greg Bear along with Ryan Rudzeski. We're talking with Arthur G. Affleck III, Executive Director of the Association of Children's Museums. Around the country, Arthur, a lot of folks are talking about the youth mental health crisis. It's showing up in our schools, and surprise, surprise, it's showing up in our museums and other sites of learning. So how is it showing up in children's museums across the country? What on earth are children's museums doing and thinking about this? So one report from the American Academy of Pediatrics talked about how children need to develop a variety of skill sets to optimize their development and manage what they call toxic stress. And we're seeing that toxic stress manifested in our museums uh, in a number of ways. One way is that front of house staff are seeing more aggression. A number of our museums have reported a greater amount of breakage of some of the exhibits. And so what we're working to do with our staff and leadership is to help staff to recognize some of these issues. I should hasten to add, sadly, in some places it's not just the children. In some places it's the parents who are getting into situations and acting out in ways that we would not expect. But there is this stress and this mental challenge. Now the beauty is there's a lot of research that says that developmentally appropriate play with parents and peers present kind of a singular opportunity to help relieve some of the stress and promote social and emotional skills and self-regulation skills that lead to better executive function. We can't solve mental health issues. That's for the professionals, but we can ameliorate some of these symptoms We can provide a respite. We can point parents and children to resources. The other thing about our museums that helps mental health is that our museums are intergenerational. All of that, I think, helps cement that bond. And those of us who've had the privilege of having grandparents around know that that other level of love and support can be so great. And so our museums facilitate all of that. And I'll just say this, that this work is so important. And as you think about mental health and what happens if we don't address these challenges with children, I love what the late, great Frederick Douglass said. And he said, it's far easier to build strong children than to repair broken men and women. Mm -hmm. And we spend an inordinate amount of resources trying to repair broken men and women. We see them every day. It is very difficult. It is easier if we put more resources into helping young people to develop the skills they need to be productive, happy, joyful, lifelong learners uh, in society. And so that's our mission. That's a way that we help address some of these great mental health challenges. Arthur, you're also involved in some initiatives to bring that sense of joy and that sense of discovery and some of that guided play beyond the walls of children's museums, too. So a few months ago, we had friend of the show, Helen Hadani, here on Remaking Tomorrow. And she is the leader of something called Playful Learning Landscapes. We understand you're on the board. And Ryan, let me add to that, too. I think about the work of the Campaign for Grade Level Reading. Ralph Smith Mm. was also a previous guest. Our listeners might want to listen to that. They have an initiative called Everyday Places and Spaces. You're part of that, too. So how do we take this great work of children's museums out into our cities, our rural spaces, and really support playful learning landscapes. 
Yes, so I was with the great Ralph Smith and others at the Children's Museum in Philadelphia called Please Touch. I was also with Helen Hadani at the Brookings Institution for another event with Kathy Hirsch-Pasick and others who are all involved with playful learning landscapes. So again, what we know is that children are in school for a certain amount of time. Most of the time they're out of school. How do we productively engage them? They're not always in a museum, but they are in their communities, going to the bus stop, going to the playground and other places. And so playful learning landscapes recognizes that Playful learning exists not just in museums and not just in classrooms, but outside in informal learning spaces. This initiative, we think, uniquely blends the science of learning and placemaking and community cohesion, transforming public and shared spaces into fun and enriching learning hubs and piazzas, if you will, because we work internationally as well. But it could be bus stops, it could be basketball courts, it could be any public space. We turn it into a place for learning and engagement. And there is data and research to show that in supermarkets, when we have had certain kinds of exhibits, that it did lead to more engagement, to more conversation with caregivers and children. And so we know it works to try to engage And we make this culturally responsive, if you will. So if we're in a Latinx community, if you will, then the kinds of images and exhibits that we'll use relate to that culture that makes that community comfortable. And the same is true when we work internationally. So I'm thrilled to be on this board. We're really ramping up to do much more work. I'm smiling, too, because as we think about landscapes, it's hard for me and Ryan not to think about the work of Fred Rogers, right? It was Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. It wasn't Mr. Rogers' classroom. It wasn't Mr. Rogers' living room. It was Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And and hearing, Arthur, you say, how do we think about the places any one of us might go as part of a learning landscape? And what are the things that we can do to be deliberate and intentional about bringing that joy of curious, caring, loving learning in all of the places where our young people might be together with the caring adults in their lives? Absolutely. You nailed it as usual. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of the things that Fred did and, and frankly, that children's museums are doing is providing a space for parents, caregivers, families, and kids to have some sort of interaction that's going to be lasting, that's going to be moving, that's going to be fun together. And you're no stranger to this idea. Arthur, you are the author of a book that you co-wrote with your son called Conversations About Education, Careers, and Life. I'm holding the book in my hand right now. It's a beautiful little volume. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? Sure. So we have an interesting family history. So my parents never went to college, didn't even finish high school. But I went on to have three degrees. My wife is multiple degrees. And so we're a college-going family. Our oldest son went through museums with us and then went on to college, went to med school. He's a surgical resident. Uh, Now my daughter is a master's in public health. My youngest son went to college for one year, honors dorm, all the perks, privileges, everything, and then decided one day, you know, Dad, I think I want to leave school. I'm not having a good experience there. It's not where I want to be. I was not shocked because I was in touch with his advisor. I was monitoring his progress. And so simply said, okay, son, what do you want to do? We decided he would work for a while and then think about his next step. Then the pandemic hit. He got laid off from his job. And we decided we both had a little bit more time, both working but had more flexibility. Let's write this book about your experience. What didn't work for you? And let's think together about non-college options. 
Part of the toxic stress, Greg and Ryan, that children feel is parents convincing them that you must do school this way, that you must get A's in everything, that you must master science and technology and STEM and all of that. If you don't do that, you're a failure. And whether we use those words or not, that's kind of what we're saying. And our conversation with our son has said, no, I love this quote. It's in the book is that all children are gifted, but some open their packages at different times. Right. And long story short, my son Calvin saved his money, his unemployment checks, moved to Virginia Beach, took a job, bought a condo. He's working on his real estate license. And I told my wife, the surgeon will do well, but he has loans. <laughs> Be nice to Calvin. <laughs> He's likely to be the mogul in the family. <laughs> Congratulations, Calvin. If you could see how proud your dad looks in the studio. One of the take-home lessons is, yes, we still believe that college is a good system, certainly designed to prepare students both intellectually and socially for careers and adult life. But it is not the only option mm. and often not the best option for some students, especially if you have no clue as to why you're at college in the first place, and which is why half of them drop out, stop out, and yet have debt and no degree. So we have to stop insisting that every child follow that same path at the same time. It's interesting, just looking through the book, it's organized in such a way that you have your commentary and Calvin has his. I'm just curious what you learned about one another through this process. Anything that's particularly surprised you? Part of the reason to do the book was to spend time with my son in this intimate way. It sparked lots of conversations. And so I did learn that he understood before I did that he could be a success in life without a degree from university, that he was a creative and that he wanted to do some things differently. I learned that he understood things like social media were not good to consume constantly. I learned, and this is important, that he went through a period of depression that we were able to talk about. And why didn't you come and talk to us? You know, didn't have the words. So parents, we've got to be more observant and more open to these conversations and don't shut down these conversations because the child assumes that if they're not saying the right things and following the right path, that we as parents will be disapproving of them. As Fred Rogers says in the book on page 110 <laughs> in your book, when you wonder, you're learning, he, he talks about, it's you I like, every part of you. And I won't sing the whole song, <laughs> but that is what I have said to my children, and that is what I said to Calvin. I like you, I love you, every part of you, and it has nothing to do with these artificial badges and certificates and degrees. And he is a good and wonderful person. And all of my kids are, mostly because they have a wonderful mother, and I did that, so I take responsibility. <laughs> but that's what we want. So he has all of those characteristics that we want to have. And there are people we know with multiple degrees that are not joyful, not productive. There are many educated derelicts, so there are no guarantees just because <laughs> you get a degree. Well, among the degreed people whom we admire in this world is Dr. Jeanette Cole, who endorsed your book. She was the one-time president of Spelman College, yes. also Bennett College. We recently had Dr. Suzanne Walsh, current president yes. of Bennett College, on Excellent. this podcast. And there's a quotation at the beginning of chapter two in your book on page eight from Dr. Jeanette Cole, who said this, an education that teaches you to understand something about the world has done only half of the assignment. The other half is to teach you to do something about making the world a better place. Arthur, you have and are making this world a better place. How can people find out more about your work? 
they can certainly go to our website at the Association of Children's Museums. Uh, I am on social media. You can find me certainly mainly on LinkedIn. There are not many Arthur Afflecks, so you'll, <laughs> you'll find me there. And just happy to, to be here and to continue to share and to grow and to learn from leaders like you. And uh, we'll continue to do this work. And before we let you go, we have mm -hmm. one last question. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? The one thing they can do is to believe that their parents who don't believe in themselves and their ability to guide and develop their children, and they don't believe their children can grow and develop if they come from disadvantaged backgrounds. And I like to say that no one rises to low expectations. And so if we don't believe in the children and if we don't instill a sense of belief in themselves, they are likely not to succeed. As someone said, if you believe you can't do it or you believe you can do it, you're probably right. Thanks again to Arthur G. Affleck III, Executive Director of the Association of Children's Museums and the author, with his son Calvin, of Conversations About Education, Careers, and Life. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning. Learn more at remakelearning.org.